Man, there is just an awesome sense of the presence of God in this place tonight. Anyone testify that? Amen. Amen. Yeah, we love it when God meets with us in this way, and it changes us. The Bible teaches us that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, And we with unveiled faces behold the Lord's glory, and as we do that, we're being changed into the same image. And what that means is when we worship God and we have these encounters, and I mean encounters, we have these encounters with God, it changes us. Um, and it's just amazing when the Lord moves kind of in our midst in that way. Um, we're jumping back into Philippians, and we're into chapter 2 this week. And the name of this sermon series is Joy in Difficult Times. And often when we go through life, the difficult times we experience are very, very often because people are part of the equation. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> Amen. And, you know, it doesn't matter where you are, it, it can be difficult to deal with people, even in churches. Churches have often been known for infighting, uh, being judgmental, and by times, not getting along with one another. And I could tell you stories of that being the case. But it's not just churches. Wherever there's people, there's problems. Like in schools, or in the RCMP, or in hospitals, or the healthcare system, <laughs> at the family dinner table, <laughs> on social media, when someone gets on a rant, or on their Instagram story, or whatever, it's messy, and it creates problems because people do that. That's what, that's what we do, right? Well, I got one person agrees with me. But seriously, though, we think about ourselves, and most of the difficulty that we experience in this life, so much of it has to do with people. It's, you know, and the problem with people, the problem with me and the problem with us and the problem with people in general is We've got all these flaws. Like, we tend to be selfish. A lot. We tend to be prideful, and we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Right? Is that true? Sometimes of humanity? How many know that sometimes we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to? We think we're all that in a bag of chips sometimes? You ever heard that saying before? Okay, never? Okay. This is, this is going real well to start, guys. Here we go. Some of us struggle with being insecure or, or being wounded or being aggressive and we have flaws and we misunderstand people. Like so many of our problems in this life is because people are flawed. It's everywhere. It's not just like a church thing. It's just that in the church, we expect better than culture, right? Culture, we just expect that because that's what happens out there. But in here, we don't expect that messy, broken, hurt stuff to come out in church, right? And sometimes we think that the church is perfect. And the second I go to a different church, I make it imperfect. Because I ain't perfect. And neither of any of you. I'm so encouraging tonight, right? 
But we're not. We're broken, dysfunctional, messed up people that come to Jesus because of that. And, but we do expect better at the church. But the church is going to be messy. You know, when we started Coastal, you know, one of the things that we prayed for specifically over and over again was to have a messy church. We're not talking about popcorn kernels being left in the seat from the movie night Friday night. We're talking about our lives. Like, we want people to feel loved and embraced here that don't have it all together, that have hurts, habits, and hang-ups because we're all just the same. I'm just the same. I got hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And we're all by times messy in our lives. But it's great to have a messy church, but one thing we don't expect is we bring all these people together that we expect that there's not going to be bumps in the road or hurts or someone gets offended. That stuff's going to happen. The church is going to go through hurts and things like that. But the good news for us is that while we're messy and we're going to make mistakes in relationships and we're going to miss the mark by times, the scripture does give us some direction with how we're actually supposed to do relationships. And Paul talks about that in the first part of chapter 2. So we're going to dive into Philippians chapter 2 here in a second. But as we look at this passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2, what's the very first word in Philippians chapter 2 verse 1? Therefore, okay. Or in some other translations, it's... See it up there on the screen? Was it up there yet? Sorry. I see it here. Oh, there we go. (laughs) I was like kind of quizzing you guys and it didn't even give you the hint. What's the very first word in Philippians chapter 2? So, anytime when you're reading the scriptures and you see the word so, but, or therefore, you always want to go back to the immediate previous verses because what is about to be said, what's about to be uh, written is based on the few verses behind. And so, so what? Well, Paul says in chapter 1, he talks about us being called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the good news of Jesus. So, in light of the fact that Jesus suffered and bled and died for us, and in light of the fact that we can be forgiven and brought back into right relationship with God, this is how you ought to do relationships with one another. You tracking? So that's kind of what this is talking about. It's, it's based on the gospel. Now this is how you ought to live. Now Paul here in chapter 2 He gives instructions with how we ought to do relationships in the church. He gives us a model to follow and ultimately points us to the master of the universe that we've been singing about all night. Brett and I were talking about in between services and the worship set he picked out could not have fit better with the sermon and with this passage of scripture. It's unreal because we're singing about Jesus reigning above it all. Do you know that Jesus actually sits at the right hand of God and he actually reigns the entire universe? Do you know that that's actually a reality in heaven right now? And that's what the end of chapter two talks about. It talks about how Jesus humbled himself to the form of a servant and humbled himself in obedience to the point of death. And it says, therefore, in light of this, God exalted him to the highest place, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we're going to dive into that tonight, and I want to talk about three specific things. The first section of Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, really is a mandate for us to embrace for how we're supposed to do relationships in the church. 
The second section of Philippians gives us a model to follow. We're supposed to love each other this way, the instructions Paul gives us, and to follow the example of Christ. God just didn't, Paul didn't just give us a command to follow in how we do relationships. He also gave us a model to follow. And ultimately, we do all that because Jesus is the master of the universe and calls us to submit to him. Every knee should bow. So why don't we start bowing now? We don't got to wait till we get to heaven to bow to Jesus. We can do that now. And so we're going to unpack that tonight. A mandate to embrace, a model to follow, and a master to submit to. So y'all ready? All right, giddy up. Here we go. A mandate to embrace. So what's really interesting about letters in the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, and this is Paul and Timothy's letter, because they co-wrote it. Paul would send his letters from prison often, and he would send it with someone that would get up in front of the church or in front of the multiple house churches. He would unwrap the scroll, and he would read the letter out loud to the people. And after he would read the letter, the letter carrier was actually able to give instructions or answer questions and so on and so forth. But Paul knew that the letter to the church in Philippi was going to be written to be read out loud. And as I got thinking about the first section of chapter 2, Paul is asking some questions here. Like just Let's go back to it here for a sec. This is going like to feel Bible study mode here for a sec. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, some of your translations have questions after this, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul here is asking questions. Is there any of this? And I wonder, as the person was reading the letter, I don't know if he paused during this to let the people reflect, but I want to pause to let you reflect on this tonight. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Is there any comfort from his love? Is there any participation with the Spirit? Is there any affection and sympathy? See, Paul was asking these questions to help the people realize and look around in the room to say, you're part of the body of Christ. Your comfort, your love, your affection, while you're going through this intense pressure-cooked time is actually in the room with you. Matter of fact, it's you. Because you have the Spirit of Christ inside of you, God has given you the resources to be the comfort, to be the encouragement, to be the the sympathy, to be Christ to one another. Paul's saying, it's in the room, it's right here. It's one another. You're that source. And in a similar way, The comfort and encouragement and sympathy, affection that most of us here in this room all need, a lot of it is probably sitting in the room. Some of it's sitting right beside you. Now, I don't know about you and how you deal with expectations, but I think a lot of us struggle with expectations. We, like, maybe even you come into church and you are expecting a certain thing. You're expecting that people treat you a certain way and, and, 
and, and are interested in your interests. And I'm not just talking about being interested in the same hockey team as you, because I'm not interested in the Leafs. <laughs> or like interested in your hunting yarns. Like, I mean, that's part of it. That's part of like putting others first. But I'm talking about like your deep, your deep interests. I'm talking about like, don't you want people to care about your family? Don't you want people to care about your work and your life and the things that weigh on you? Don't you want other people to care about your future and your goals and your dreams and all the things that mean a lot to you? I think all of us like desire that. I think some of us go so far as to expect that. And that's a real struggle when people aren't meeting our expectations. It's really, really difficult. And it's especially difficult when we go through pressure cooked times. And we understand the church in Philippi was going through a pressure cooked time. They were having all kinds of pressure from the outside. And according to this particular section, Paul seems to think they were having pressure on the inside because he had to speak to the issue of unity. You see it? He's asking them to say, be the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. Often when there's pressure on the outside, it tests the pressure on the inside. I don't know if you've ever feel like you've been under pressure. Someone just chuckled. You ever, like, feel pressure from work? I got some laughs. You ever feel, like, pressure at home? You ever have financial pressures? We are all in a pressure culture, constantly having pressure from the outside to try to make us conform to the pattern of this world. And not only that, sometimes the pressure from the outside can actually be the catalyst to turn the pressure up on the inside in terms of our family. I know a few weeks ago, my wife and I, we just had like two like very stressful weeks. And at the end of the week, I noticed I had to go to my wife and apologize because I was passive aggressive, which I can be sometimes. But sometimes, like, let's be honest, like pressure from the outside makes pressure on the inside. How many times have you come home stressed? And all of a sudden, you start bickering and complaining. And all of a sudden, you're like, why am I being this way? Because it's hard. Life's hard. And we experience pressure. And we have a certain level of expectations. But what's amazing about this passage of Scripture is it kind of flips the script a little bit. It says, instead of expecting things from other people, why don't you let it start with you? Why don't you actually be more concerned about others' interests than your own? The scripture says, why don't you count others as more significant of you? One way to really get past yourself, this is really, really good. If you're ever feeling down the dumps, if you're ever feeling like really having a pity party and you're feeling terrible about yourself, you know what a great medicine is for that? Go start blessing someone else. It is amazing what will happen when you're feeling down about yourself and you said, I don't care how I'm feeling right now, I'm gonna go bless someone else. It's amazing how that can take your focus off of you and your own emotions and your own way of thinking. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, yeah, I know church in Philippi, you've got some stuff going on outside and inside, but what would it look like if you actually counted others' interests as more important than your own? What would it look like if, if you um, considered other people as better than yourself? I mean, just imagine for a second that everyone in this room actually considered Others' interest is better than our own. Would that make our church a better church? 
Would that make our church a better church? Would that make our community better? What if, what if everyone in this church started counting other people as better than themselves? Would that make our church better? Make our community better? Yeah, for sure. It's like, it's, for a lot of us, like, that's a no-brainer. Of course, like, putting others first and counting others' interests is better than ourselves. Like, of course that would make the world a better place. So my question is, why doesn't it happen? If it's a no-brainer, what is it that that doesn't seem to happen? What's interfering with us putting others' interests above our own? Well, the Bible talks about it. And the problem is our mind and our attitude has been formed for self-interest. We've all been formed to focus only on our own interests. And I don't, do, I, need, I don't need to do a lot of convincing on that point, do I? Like, I think we all inherently know that we're all wired to think about ourselves and our own interests. And it's not that God does not want us to focus on our interests. The scripture says, do not focus only on your own interest. This, there, there's interests that you have God has entrusted you with being responsible of that stuff. But if I'm honest here tonight, I don't think we struggle with looking after our own stuff. Some of us might, but most of us don't. It's moving past our own world and focusing on the other people's interests, the interests of others. That's where the struggle is. And, it, and the reason we have this problem is because we've been formed in sin. Now, one thing I love about the good news of Jesus is that when Jesus went to the cross, the Bible teaches us he took our selfishness upon himself and he nailed our selfishness to the cross. You know, oftentimes we talk about how Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And yes, and sometimes it can get, go so cliche. But when we really understand this, like, Jesus took your selfishness and my selfishness upon himself 2,000 years ago. He nailed our selfishness to the cross. And he died. And he broke the power of selfishness off of our life. And by faith in Jesus, we have the power and ability to now look at the interests of other people and count other people as more significant than us. We can't do that without Jesus. That's why it says in verse 5, the mind and attitude of Christ is ours in Christ Jesus. We got it now. It's part of our inheritance. It's part of the good news. We don't have to be selfish anymore because Jesus broke the power of selfishness. Isn't that good news? We all know that we kind of live for ourselves. We know that. But the hope all of a sudden to be freed from living for us and have this ability now through Jesus to bless and love other people, to make others our interest. And like, there's really practical ways we can be interested in other people. It's like asking questions to someone. 
and really listening for what they're saying. And not asking questions to be nosy, but asking questions because you care and listening. Because people might not remember what you did and people might not remember what you said, but people will remember how you made them feel. And when you take time to not focus on you, but to focus on someone else's interest, it makes them feel loved because they are. They're loved by God and you're his representative. There's people in this room that you need to be curious about on purpose. You need to ask people in this room questions, not to be nosy, but because you're supposed to be the comfort and love and encouragement that that person needs. So we have this mandate to embrace, this blessing one to another. And we don't just have a mandate to embrace, we have a model to follow. The world gives us a model of following. It says, like, commercialism and advertising is so wired to do what? Make you think about you. Like, it's what, like, even like our social media. You ever get creeped out? How, like, you're having a conversation, I don't know, about something? about furniture or about buying a new car or like going on this trip and all of a sudden on Facebook, it's like, all these ads start popping up because the world and culture is geared for self-interest. But Christ provides an alternative way. It's the total opposite of self-interest. It's humbling himself. It's He could have counted himself equal with God, but he actually laid that aside. Humbly he came to the earth he created. Jesus stepped down, became a man, limited himself, and humbled himself in the form of a servant. Humbled himself to obedience to God to the point of death. Why? Why would Jesus do all that? Why would he humble himself to such a degree? Because he modeled what putting others' interests first really looks like. What was, what was Jesus thinking about when he suffered on the cross? He was thinking about you. He was thinking about you. Your interest. How many, here's a question for you to think about. How many of your interests did Jesus deal with on your behalf at the cross? I mean, our need to be forgiven, our need to be brought back into a right relationship with God, our need for purpose and destiny and healing and restoration and a need to be freed from shame and guilt, the need to be set free from addiction, the need to be set free from all slaveries. Like, There were so many needs and interests that Jesus dealt with at the cross and Jesus took care of interests that aren't even on our list that we're not even aware of. Why? Because his highest interest is you. His highest interest is you. He loves you. And he modeled for us perfectly what it looks like to count others as better than yourself. Now, that's a tall order. I don't know about you, but, like, I'll never get there this side of eternity to the, be like that. But that's the goal to shoot for. 
And God, believe it or not, is making us more and more like Jesus. He's making us more and more selfless, more and more interested in other people, and more and more giving us the ability now to put, count others as better than ourselves. We have a model to follow. And ultimately, we do all that because we have a master to submit to. What's amazing about Jesus is that because he humbled himself to the point of death, he humbled himself to such a large degree. He was with God in the beginning, but he chose to come to this earth and humble himself. And as a result of him humbling himself to the point of death and going into the grave, God, the Bible says, resurrected Jesus and exalted him in the ascension to the highest place above the universe. So Jesus reigns and rules above everything. The Bible says Jesus created all things and he holds all things together right now. Do you know that Jesus is actually the master of the entire cosmos? He reigns it all. And yet, he wants to have a relationship with you and I. I don't know what to do with that. It's like Psalm chapter 4. When I think of you, God, and look at the heavens and think the stars and the sky and all that, it's like, what is man that you are mindful of us? And yet, he is. And he wants this relationship with us. This, the master of the universe, the name that's above every other name, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, wants a relationship with you and I. And you know what he wants from you? He wants you to give in. He wants you to surrender. He wants you to bow. The end of Philippians chapter 2 says, every knee should bow. So the question I said earlier, if every knee should bow, what's stopping us right now? What's stopping us right now to bowing our entire lives, everything, all our decisions, everything fully to him? Because that's really how we worship God. It's not with empty songs and empty actions. It's saying, God, here am I. You can have it all. And it's amazing when we submit to him the blessing it brings to our lives. We have a mandate to embrace. We have a model to follow. And we have a master to submit to. Let me ask you this question. Is Jesus, if Jesus reigns above it all, like we sang about tonight, does he reign over your lifestyle? Does he have all of you? Or are there areas of your life, areas of my life, that I haven't yet surrendered fully to Jesus? This is an opportunity for us here tonight in this room to say, if the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you tonight, is there an area of your life that you haven't fully surrendered to Jesus that he's like identifying and pointing out and saying, I want this. I want it all. But I want this particular area of your life. You know, two of the things that scripture teaches us in terms of actions, of, in terms of how we worship God, one of them is to kneel. And throughout the whole songs and the song we're going to sing here in a second, it talks about bowing down. 
The Bible says in the Psalms, let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Now I know that here at Coastal, we don't have a lot of times where we kneel. As a matter of fact, I was kneeling tonight and this cement's really uncomfortable. <laughs> you know what else is really, really uncomfortable? Submission. And I was reminded as I knelt on this concrete floor how hard it is to fully submit my life to God. Because I so quickly want to do my own thing. Things that I like to do and not be yielded to Him. And I'm here to tell you, like, as you choose to commit to submit to Jesus, it is going to be uncomfortable. But sometimes it actually takes us kneeling and saying, Lord, as an act of worship, I'm bowing my body and my heart to you because you're my master you're my king you're my lord is he not is he not lord is he not king is he not master doesn't he deserve it all he does and so we kneel in submission and say jesus help us to submit when we don't want to submit or maybe tonight maybe so you want to kneel tonight Come forward or in your chair or whatever. Or maybe tonight, you know, we do this thing in church sometimes called raising our hands. The scripture actually says to lift up holy hands. And when you lift up your hands, you see, if you're here tonight and you see that, and maybe it's your first time, why are they raising their hands? We raise our hands as an act of surrender to Jesus. We're saying, all my life, all that I am, everything, it's yours, Jesus. So tonight, what if we made tonight an opportunity for us to commit or recommit our entire lives to the master. What if we were to say, Jesus, I will follow your direction in blessing my brother and sister in this room. And I will follow you, knowing that I'll never fully measure up, but by your grace, Lord, I'll make an effort to be obedient to you, to humble myself in the form of a servant. And I'll be a blessing to anyone I rub shoulders with. So tonight, if you want to commit your heart afresh to God, raise your hands, kneel, do whatever you need to do. Sing out this song we're going to sing. But what's most important is not the outward sign. Because God doesn't look at outward appearance. He looks at your heart. So what's your heart doing as it responds to the king? Would you stand to your feet?